listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. This is the last message in the mini-series, Understand Life. And in order to get an understanding of the whole series, you need to listen to the whole series. Otherwise, you could take something out of context. But I know that we've been talking about some pretty heavy stuff. It's been exciting, and it's been heavy. My only difficulty is that I don't have enough time to be as exhaustive about things as I'd really like us to be, but enough to whet your appetite. Well, I know that the, the, the range of response has been pretty broad, uh, mostly in the realm of thank you, I wish that we heard this earlier. I wish more people would talk about this stuff. It's been awesome. To all the way over on this other extreme, I'm afraid. And I don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do with all of that? And it's understandable that there would be this extreme, this expanse, right? So I thought maybe today it might be good to lighten things up a little bit before we dive in deeper again today. I just recently heard about three brothers named Vincent, Michael, and Peter. Now that caught my attention because I come from a family where I have an older brother and a younger brother. The older one's name is Vincent, the younger one's name is Peter, and my name happens to be Michael. So I heard about this family and it caught my attention. They had a birthday coming up for their mother. She was going to be 90 years old. That's a pretty significant milestone, 90 years old. So the only problem with these guys is that they were very successful, at least two out of the three. The older one, Vincent, and the younger one, Peter, wouldn't you know, the middle child, Michael, not too successful. Well, they were also very, very competitive. Now, that competitiveness led them to compete against each other for sibling rivalry. Well, Michael knew that he had a big problem on his hands because there's no way that he was going to be able to compete against his older brother, Vincent, who was wealthy and successful, or his younger brother, Peter, who was wealthy and successful. And the birthday was fast approaching for their mother's 90th birthday party. And Michael was pretty depressed. So he's walking down the street one day, and there he sees in the distance a pet shop, figures he'll go out and kick, uh, kill some time, goes into the pet shop, makes his way around, looks at a few things, looks down and out and all dejected, makes his, starts making his way out of the pet shop. The guy behind the register recognizes that and says, hey, can I help you with anything, as often happens when you're in a store. And Michael says, no, I wish you could. And the clerk begins to talk to him and he says, well, what's the problem? He says, well, my mother is coming up on her 90th birthday. We're going to have a party for her. My older brother is very wealthy. My younger brother is very wealthy. I'm not very wealthy. There's no way I can get her a gift that's going to do justice to what my older and younger brothers are going to get her. I'm depressed. And the the clerk says, well, tell me some more. He says, well, she's a godly woman. She's a Christian. She loves Jesus. She loves to read the Bible, but she's also losing her eyesight. She has glaucoma. So she can't read the Bible the way she used to read the Bible, which presents a problem because if you can't read the Bible, you can't know a God that you're supposed to love and worship and enjoy. So this presented a real problem. So the clerk says, hey, that's no problem. I got a solution for you takes Michael into the back room, and there in the back room, in the dark light, in a cage, the clerk says, there's your birthday gift for your mother. Michael says, I'm not getting a scrawny, mangy-looking parrot for my mother on her 90th birthday party. And the clerk says, oh, yes, you are, because this is not just any parrot. This is a Christian parrot. Michael says, yeah, 
exactly. He knows what you and I know. How can a parrot possibly be Christian? Well, the clerk says, well, he's not Christian. What I mean is that it has every verse of the Bible memorized from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 to the last verse of the last chapter in the book of Revelation. Michael says, I don't believe it. He says, try it. Michael launches off into a litany of scriptures, references them, and the parrot squawks, and then recites the verse word for word, flawlessly, perfectly. Well, the amazing thing is that Michael is won over. He says, this is fantastic. My mother can now do her devotions with the help of the parrot. She won't have to read the Bible herself. She'll just recite the Bible verse. The parrot will give the Bible verse. And my mother can continue to experience and enjoy God as she gets older and older. Weeks pass. The birthday comes up. The gifts are exchanged. Everybody's happy and excited. Weeks after the birthday party pass, Vincent goes out to his mailbox. Old school, not email. Opens up the door of his mailbox. Reaches his hand in. Pulls out his mail. And in there is a letter that he recognizes the writing. Recognizes the handwriting. It's from his mother. Tears open the envelope and it says, Dear Vincent, I want to thank you so much for the gift. See, what Vincent had gotten for his mother was a Rolls Royce limousine and a chauffeur to drive her around. What Peter had gotten his mother was a mini mansion, 10 bedrooms, and five bathrooms. So Vincent gets the chauffeur and the limousine. Peter gets the mini mansion, 10 bedrooms, five bathrooms. Vincent's now opening up the thank you letter from his mother. And there it says, Vincent, I want to thank you so much for your kindness and your generosity. The birthday party was wonderful. However, you don't really understand your mother. The price of gas is outrageous. The chauffeur had a foul mouth, so I fired the driver and sold the limousine. The next day, Peter goes to his mailbox, old school, reaches his hand in, pulls out his mail, and there he recognizes also a letter with his mother's handwriting. Tears open the envelope, begins to read. Peter, thank you so much for your generosity and your kindness. Thank you for the party. Thank you for the mansion. But you really don't understand your mother. How am I, as a 90-year-old woman who has trouble with her eyesight, going to clean 10 bedrooms and 5 bathrooms? Most of us struggle with one bathroom and one bedroom. She says, so I listed the house for sale. It's going up tomorrow. The next day, Michael goes to his mailbox, reaches into his mailbox, pulls out an envelope, and recognizes the handwriting to be his mother's. He tears it open, and he begins to read, Michael, I want to thank you for your generosity and your kindness. Thank you for the birthday party that you threw for me. Thank you for the gift. You're the only one who seems to understand me. Thank you so much. The chicken was delicious. If you have a problem with vision, it will affect all of your life. That woman had a problem biologically with her eyesight. She could not see things she needed to see and therefore was going through her life with a tremendous amount of difficulty. The same thing is true for you and for me spiritually. Vision changes everything for better or worse. If you have good vision, it's a good thing. If you have bad vision, it's a bad thing. What we need in life is God's vision. Last time together, we talked about God being under attack. We talked a little bit about radical Islam. 
Islamic extremists and what they're doing and persecuting and persecuting Christians and what's happening a little bit in this country and what's happening around the world. And I believe, to be honest with you, what is going to continue to happen in this country unless something changes at a fundamental level. Now, are we preaching hatred toward Islam? Absolutely not. Are we preaching hatred toward Muslims? Absolutely not. All we're doing, however, is recognizing that there must be something to the fact that persecution is happening around the world, predominantly against Christians, at the hands of Muslims and Muslim governments. When 40 out of the 50 countries around the world, as detailed by the World Watch List by OpendoorsUSA.org, When 40 out of the 50 countries that are persecuting Christians with the most atrocious form of persecution, the most atrocious, terrible forms of persecution are either Muslim regimes or the persecution is happening in those countries at the hands of radical Muslims, there is a problem. Now, are there Muslims who would not practice that? Are there Muslims who would decry that and be upset that that's happening? Of course there are. But we have to connect the dots. We have to realize that if we're going to pick apples off of a tree and put them in our bushel, and at the end of picking, we look at our bushel, and the majority of the apples are rotten, it's time to start looking at the tree. Did you know, for example, that in Nigeria over the past four years, in the nation of Nigeria, in Africa, over the past four years... Not 10 churches have been destroyed by radical Muslims. Not 20 churches or 30 churches or 40 churches or 50. I wish it was that low. Not 60 churches or 70 or 80 or 90 or 100. Not 200 or 300 or 400 or 500. Over 1,000 churches have been destroyed by radical Muslims in the nation of Nigeria over the past four years. And that does not include the homes of pastors and Christian leaders who have had their homes burnt down, who have been flogged and beaten and beheaded and suffered all types of persecution by radical Muslims in the name of their God. But I am here to say with confidence before the living and true God from his word that there is no God but the God of the Bible and Jesus is his prophet. That is the truth that we celebrate. That is the truth that we embrace. That is the truth that sets people free. And this is why many Muslims around the world are having visions of Jesus Christ. They are having visions of people coming and sharing from a book that they later find out to be the Bible. And they're accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior and their God and their Lord. The first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. That's the first responsibility of a leader. And we spent last time, almost all of our time together last time, talking about what's happening in our nation, what's happening in the world with persecution against Christians. And we looked at it in the context of spiritual warfare, which all goes back to Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Look with me at our Father's word. The Abrahamic covenant. See, God had made a promise to Abraham. 
And we see that that promise in the Abrahamic covenant with multiple pieces is fulfilled all through. It's expanded upon. It's expounded upon. It's elaborated. It's ratified from Genesis 12 all the way through Genesis 22. And then we're off and running. The whole rest of the Bible goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. You want to understand the Bible? You have to understand the Abrahamic covenant. What God promised. And when you understand what God promised, you'll understand not only all of the Bible, but the Bible is about life. Your life, my life. It helps us understand life. When you understand the Abrahamic covenant, you understand the Bible, you begin to understand all of life. And that's why we go back again to Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Remember, remember, remember your best years yet might just be coming to fruition. God doesn't need the number of years in your life. He needs life in your years. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Land, people, and people. That's what the Abrahamic covenant is about. Land, people, and people. That's what life is about. All of history is about land, people, and people. The land that God promised the Jewish people, which they haven't experienced in the totality that they one day will. The geographic land that we now call the land of Israel is a fraction of what it one day will be. Why is it important? Because God promised that he would give it to the Jewish people and that they would experience that land in peace, which they've never had in the current small swath, which pales in comparison to what they're getting called Israel. God promised it. That's why it's under attack. John 10.10, the thief, the devil, our enemy, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's why we talked last time about spiritual warfare. That's why we understand that the land that God promised is under attack. That's how we understand that the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, were under attack, are under attack, will always be under attack, are fleeing from Paris even to this moment to get away from radicals who are persecuting the Jews because God promised a people from Abram, the Jewish people, the nation of people having a land where the nation can enjoy life together and then God almost also promised God also promised through Abram one particular offspring, a seed, through whom all the people, all the families on the earth would be blessed, and that is Jesus. We find that out in Galatians chapter 3, that Jesus is the offspring, the promise, given to Abram way back in Genesis 12, and talked about and discussed all the way through the whole Bible, even beginning in Genesis chapter 3, with the serpent and the promised one who would come. And crush his head. 
The whole Bible is about Jesus. That's why on the road to Emmaus, Jesus opened their eyes to help them understand everything that was written about him in the law and the prophets. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And the whole Abrahamic covenant is about Jesus. It's not just land that God cares about. It's not just natural people that God cares about. It's spiritual people. We see that 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 people that's discussed in the Abrahamic covenant made clear in the New Testament that it is the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people together in what's called the church, the body of Christ. God promised land, the Hebrew people, that nation, and people, the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile fellowshipping together. That's the Abrahamic covenant. So why would we be surprised that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy and to attack what God has said he's going to do? Well, I'm afraid. Maybe not the way that you're afraid. You see, you need to not be afraid. I'm afraid that we have a vision problem in the body of Christ. I'm afraid that we're afraid. It concerns me that we are afraid of people. We are afraid of what someone might do to us. We are afraid of what somebody or some people are in the process of doing to us. We seem to have spiritual glaucoma. We seem to have spiritual cataracts. We've lost our vision. And you have to understand what God has been speaking to me, what God wants to speak to you, what God wants to speak to every follower of Jesus Christ. If you're listening by podcast, you will either walk by fear or you will walk by faith. Fear is the opposite of faith. You can't fear man, you can't fear circumstances and walk by faith at the same time. One will eclipse and overcome the other. And our problem, brothers and sisters, is that we have lost sight of the sovereignty and the omnipotence of God. The God of the Bible. There is one God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and Jesus is his prophet. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. He is the great I am. Nobody like Jesus. All through the New Testament, we see Jesus being worshipped. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is being worshipped. Jesus himself, at the end of Matthew's gospel, they worship him. And we don't see Jesus rebuking the apostles because Jesus knew that they were beginning to get traction. Jesus should have rebuked them if it was inappropriate for him to be worshipped. I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, that we have lost sight of our heritage and history made possible through the sovereign omnipotence of God. And when you lose sight, when I lose sight, when we lose sight of the sovereignty of God, of the omnipotence, the all-powerful nature of God, the one who spoke things into existence and they were when we lose sight in the sovereignty of God and the omnipotence of God fear 
flood comes in like a flood. We begin to worry about people and groups of people. What might happen to me if I follow Jesus? We serve and know and love and have been rescued by the sovereign of all sovereigns, the living and true God, the omnipotent, all-powerful God. What has happened to us? We have lost sight of our heritage, lost sight of our history. We've lost our God, and it's time we get him back. You know, in Genesis chapter 12, God lays it all out for the first time for Abram in the Abrahamic covenant. But then we see again in Exodus chapter 3, a murderer named Moses killed a man, wandered for 40 years, tending his father-in-law's sheep. How's that for a success story? Goes over to see a strange sight, why this bush is on fire and does not burn up. But that's not why Moses was going over to see that bush. That's the human side of things. Moses thought he was going over to see a physiological impossibility, getting a science lesson. A bush can't be on fire and not be consumed. Behind the scenes, divinely speaking, God was raising up a leader so that he could set the stage for the Abrahamic covenant, the establishment of the Jewish people, and his prophetic plan bringing Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, to redeem all of creation that was lost in the fall in the beginning of Genesis. There was a divine picture behind what humanly seemed to be happening. God was raising up a leader to be a deliverer of that nation. That's why Moses went over to see that bush. God was sovereign. God was all-powerful. God was using somebody who was a murderer, and he still does that today. Exodus chapter 17, we see that same man being established by God, Moses The Israelites going into the land that God had promised them, dealing battle with the enemy who was in the land that God had promised them. And Joshua and the Israelites are down in the valley fighting. And where's Moses? With the staff of God in his hand, representing the presence and the power and the blessing and the word of God. What God says, God will do in his timing and his way. And no weapon formed against him will prosper. And Moses is up on that mountainside with his hands held high. And he got tired because he, like you and me, is a mere mortal. He was a mere mortal. And his hands got tired. And when his hands came down, the Israelites started to lose. As long as his hands were up, the Israelites were winning. And the people got wind of this. People put one and one together. It added up to two. And they realized we need to put one guy on his left, one guy on his right. Because no mere mortal can do the work of God alone. And Moses' hands were lifted up. They put something underneath him to sit, and as long as his hands were up, the Israelites were winning. And on that day, because God said it would be, because God is sovereign, because God is all-powerful, God and the Israelites overcame their enemies. You don't believe me? Look again at Exodus chapter 17 and Judges chapter 7. The original 300. A man named Gideon has a boatload of men, and God says, I don't need them because they don't have faith. God says, I don't need them because 
you might take the credit and the glory for what only I should take the credit for. God has Gideon pare the numbers down and pare them down and pare them down until he's left with 300. And we learn the lesson that God is sovereign and God is omnipotent. He doesn't need numbers. He needs faith. Oh, if we had 300 men of God today. Oh, if we had 300 women of God today, women of faith, men of faith, men of God. What God could do through 300 would be unbelievable because on that day, Gideon and his 300 overtook an army more numerous than the sands on the seashore. Why? Because God is sovereign, because God is omnipotent, and because God said something that he was going to fulfill. And God, when God says something, he keeps his word. In the book of Ruth, we come across this unlikely person who is a Gentile, a Moabite woman. A Gentile being used by God. Imagine that. She's not Jewish. Not one of the chosen. And yet when we read the New Testament, we see that Ruth, this Gentile, being used in the Old Testament as a nod, as a foreshadowing of God reaching out to the Gentiles, Ruth actually ends up being an ancestor of Jesus Christ. See, I'm just highlighting some stories here. Because you don't have enough time to go into all of them. But First Samuel chapter 17, there's a young teenage boy and a human army tank. You might know them by the name of David and Goliath. Where the entire nation, the Israelites, were quaking and shaking in their boots. Scared to death. Week after week after week, this drama went on with Goliath ridiculing and defying the armies of Israel. And nobody was ready to take him on. But a boy who was not trained in conventional warfare who saw his God come through repeatedly in his life as a shepherd boy, was foolish enough that he became faithful enough to realize God can use even me. And on that day, a shepherd boy with a rock and a sling overtook what any of the other Israelites could have done if only they exercised faith in the sovereign God that they knew and worshipped, in the omnipotent God. So the Israelites began looking at their own human ability. When you start to look at your own human ability, you will be sobered because you will recognize you have quite a bit of inability. It's only when you begin to look at God that you will depend upon his omnipotence, his sovereignty. And on that day, David overtook the human army tank, Goliath. First Kings chapter 18, we have a man who we could call affectionately, if we were going to use nicknames, Elijah, bring me the water, the prophet. That's what we could call him. Elijah, bring me the water, the prophet. You see, what Elijah did is he was defying those false prophets, the prophets of Baal. And he said, bring the sacrifice. You bring your sacrifice, I'll bring mine. You call on your God, I'll call on my God. Why don't you call louder? Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's in the bathroom relieving himself. This encounter between the true and living God, the God of the Bible, Elijah's God, the sovereign God, the all-powerful God. And Elijah says, you know what? Put some water on that sacrifice and on the wood. Do it again. 
And do it again. Elijah, bring me the water, the prophet. And the fire comes down from heaven and consumes the water and the sacrifice and the wood and everything. And on that day, God showed that no matter how many are against him, God's plan, will, and purpose will prevail. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we have a guy who has an interesting name that might make us think about his waistline, but it's not about his waistline. He's a king named Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat had a problem. He didn't know what to do because he again was surrounded by the enemy. Humanly speaking, not possible to be victorious against such a numerous, strong, fearful enemy. And Jehoshaphat cries out. He says, I don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. But I've got an ace in my back pocket here. You've got an ace in your back pocket. Don't lose sight of it. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Stop looking at the mere mortal, the mere natural circumstances. Start looking at the God who moves in spite of the circumstances, the God who is sovereign the God who's omnipotent, the God of the Bible. And on that day, Jehoshaphat was delivered and God gave Jehoshaphat victory. You know, in Second Chronicles chapter 32, we have a situation where the nation, again, God's people, was in turmoil and difficulty and God had to raise up an eight-year-old boy. An eight-year-old boy because the older people were too smart and too wise to be tracking with God. A young boy named Josiah became king. And something happened not short after that time where God raised him up. He found this book that had dust all over it. The book of God. The book of the law. And he dusted it off. They brought it to him. And he, as a young man, repented. Called the whole nation to repentance. And the nation followed him. And they rediscovered what they had forgotten, that theirs was the God who was sovereign, that theirs was the God who was omnipotent, that theirs was the living and true God, the only true God, and that all others are idols and false and fake, causing people to be into bondage, not setting them free. And on that day, a great revival began in the land, and oh, how we need revival today in this land in which we live, and if it's going to be, it's up to me. It's up to you. It's up to us to stop waiting and watching. When will God know? How about right here, right now, in my life, in my church, in this area, in this region? That's how revival begins. You know, we have a story of one of the shortest people in the Bible, the book of Nehemiah. We know that he's one of the shortest people in the Bible because his name is Nehemiah. We know that. The nation was in turmoil and the wall was in disrepair, symbolizing the wall, symbolizing either the protective hand of God or the people being in trouble and vulnerable. He rebuilt that wall. God put it on his heart to work with a trowel and the sword. How practical is that? Protecting from foreign enemies and using the trowel. And through that man, Nehemiah, and through God's people under the leadership of Nehemiah, God rescued that nation. Why? Not just because it was Nehemiah, but because Nehemiah believed in the sovereign, omnipotent hand of his God and prospered through his faith. 
You know, in Psalm 23, 4, we've all read this. We've all heard it. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. It's a promise that we can hold dear to. Fear no evil. Though you take me right through the valley of the shadow of death. And then again, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, we have the king is gone and the prophet shows up. Isaiah, the man about which all of the rest of the prophets are referred to as Isaiah. You refer to Isaiah, you're referring to all the prophets, the major and minor prophets, and the king has died. And what Isaiah sees in Isaiah chapter 6 is the train of the king, the flowing robe of the king. And the implication is that the longer the train, the longer the robe, the greater the king. And so when Isaiah says, the train of his robe filled the temple, It's a time of hope and encouragement in the midst of adversity and discouragement. Because the king was dead. The king was gone. No vision, no leadership. Who's going to rise up in the nation? There was a good king followed by a bad king. Followed by a bad king. Followed by a good king. Followed by a bad king. Bad king. Bad king. Good king. It's this ping-ponging back and forth. So the king had died. And so the question was, will we now have a good king or a bad king? And what God was saying in his vision to Isaiah is that, I am your king. There is no king like me. I am sovereign. I'm omnipotent. And I am calling you, Isaiah, to call this nation who has my name to repentance. All God's work begins with repentance. And it begins with repentance among God's people. Isaiah understood that God was sovereign. And God was omnipotent. And then in the book of Daniel chapter 3, we have the three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We have the three. And what happened was the king was upset with them because they wouldn't bow down and worship a false god. These guys were filled with faith, not fear. While everyone was worshiping the false god and falling down in idolatry, they said, no way. And the king got really ticked, really peeved, heated the furnace super hot so that you got close to it, you would burn. Your skin would melt off your body. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in there. And a little while later, the king looks in and says, wait a second. I threw three men in there. I see four. And one of them looks like a son of the gods. A pre-birth appearance of the son of God, Jesus. And when they came out of that furnace, not only did they come out of that furnace, but you couldn't even smell the smoke on their garments. I wish I could accomplish that feat in my house with my fireplace. God was sovereign. God was omnipotent. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that that was the case. Daniel chapter 6. The man who that book is named after, Daniel, is thrown into a den of lions. And his fame to claim was not that God's going to rescue me. He might not. His claim to fame was that whether he rescues me or not, I ain't serving anybody but him. Yeah. Right. And now we read about the sovereign, omnipotent hand of God that rescued Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, 
from the hand of his oppressors. In Joel chapter 2, we have a minor prophet who says something very major, fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, in the last days, your young men will see dreams and have visions. And in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter, the one who we would consider to be a failure because he denied Jesus three times, references the minor prophet's words and says, this is that. This speaking in other languages that we're seeing on the day of Pentecost the advancement of the kingdom of God, that it's not just for the Jew, but for all of the world. That's why they were speaking in the other languages. They heard them declaring the glory of God in their own languages. Peter says, this is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And what did we learn? That the last days began over 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost. And we've been living in them ever since. Peter understood the sovereign, omnipotent hand of God. And then in the book of Jonah, we have a prophet. We might say instead of it being prophetic, it seems more pathetic, but his life is a lot like yours and mine. God speaks to him and he says, I can't do that. I'm too afraid. I'm too disinterested in other people. Have you ever been disinterested in other people? Too afraid of what other people might say? The prophet Jonah is a great lesson for us. And we learn from him that God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. You can't run from God. You can't resist God and win. What God says will be, will be. We learn about that from the prophet Jonah. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2, we learn about the house of bread, Bethlehem. That from the house of bread came the bread of life, Jesus. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2, that's where it's mentioned very clearly that the Messiah, the Savior, would come from Bethlehem. And that's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And then by the time we get to the last book in the Old Testament, the Italian prophet, you know, Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. The promise is that God would send his servant Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day when the Messiah would come. And we see in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, that Jesus said Elijah did come. And if you're willing to believe it, John the Baptist was the second coming of Elijah. He was a kind of Elijah, which means Jesus was saying very clearly, that makes me, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who came after him. The sovereign hand of God. The omnipotent hand of God working through circumstances. In Luke chapter 1, an unlikely couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, beyond their childbearing years, through a roll of the dice, what seemed to be a coincidence by his appointment in serving in that place as a priest, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, God shows up and says, I'm going to bring John the Baptist into the world, the Elijah who was to come through you. God was sovereign. God was omnipotent. He often waits until things are beyond human ability to do anything so that he can get all the glory and all the credit. But he also works with people. Luke chapter 1. Again, Mary, this young woman, experiences a biological impossibility. She's not even married, has never been with a man, and she conceives through the virgin birth and gives birth eventually to Jesus, the Messiah, which was necessary that Jesus be fully God and fully man so that he could be without sin and take away your sin and mine. And then in the Gospels, what do we see in the Gospels? But unschooled, unlearned, ordinary men. Unschooled, unlearned, ordinary men. God using them and transforming them. And through 11 of the 12, through God's sovereign, omnipotent hand, he began a revolution. 
What he promised in Genesis chapter 12 so many, many years earlier was taking a quantum leap forward through these men who had faith. And then, of course, in the Gospels, what do we see happens to Jesus? Jesus being the first martyr. The example for us all of what it means to be faithful, even to the point of death in Acts chapter 2. The one who denied Jesus three times after being told he would do it ahead of time, Peter, ends up being the guy that God uses. And 3,000 people, more than Jesus' entire three-year ministry, 3,000 people get saved because God is sovereign. And your shortcomings and your sin and your difficulties and mine are no obstacle for the mighty, matchless hand of a sovereign, omnipotent God. In Acts chapter 5, verse 17, turn with me to this amazing passage of Scripture. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. This seems like a reversal, but it's about to be one of the greatest advancements in the history that you and I share as followers of Jesus Christ. Miraculous signs and wonders are being done by the apostles. Everything seems to be moving forward. And now they're thrown into prison. 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, quote, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside, end quote. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to, wondering how this is going to end. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid. See, now they're afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Brothers and sisters, what has happened to us? This is our heritage. This is our history. The sovereign, omnipotent God moving and people moving with him, partnering with him. What has happened to us that we are more afraid of mere mortals than the living and true God who is sovereign and omnipotent? We must obey God rather than men. And nothing has changed. So must we. That's right. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. Have we forgotten that this happened? The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance, repentance, repentance to Israel and forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. 
And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Have we forgotten our secret, not-so-secret weapon, the Holy Spirit? The one who makes us what we would otherwise not be? The one who puts words in our mouth we would otherwise not speak? Who totally transforms a life like the way he transformed the life of Peter? Like so many people in the New Testament, like a guy like Saul who became Paul, a murderous blasphemer who had zeal without wisdom, didn't understand the God he was persecuting. The Holy Spirit is your not-so-secret weapon to live a life you would otherwise not live for the glory of almighty, sovereign, omnipotent God. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before the days, before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be someone and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then the apostles left the presence of the council and decided that they would no longer preach and teach about Jesus Christ. And that's the anticlimactic end of the story. It's not the way it goes down. Have we forgotten? Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ because they understood that their God, our God, the God of the Bible, is the living and true God. He is sovereign and he is omnipotent. And God gave them power to say and do what they otherwise would not do. It was never about their power. It was always about God's power. It's never about your power. It's always about God's power. And what you and I need to come to a rediscovery about to have our spiritual cataracts removed, is that once again, it must be about the power of God. No matter what we're facing, no matter what is happening, if God is for us, and he is, if we're following him, then who can be against us? But in Acts chapter 7, we see that this man named Stephen, filled with the Spirit of God, faithful and loyal to the end, speaks up to such a point that he ends up being stoned. And at the end of his stoning, he says, look, I see the Son of Man standing, Jesus, ready to receive him. Stephen 
was willing to endure to the point of death because he knew that his God, the God of the Bible, the living and true God, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come, the great I am, is the sovereign, omnipotent God. And it wasn't about whether he spared his own life or lost his own life. What is wrong with us anymore? What are we so afraid of? Stephen understood that it was his sovereign God and his omnipotent God who would be glorified one way or the other. And then when we get to Acts chapter 9, a man named Saul becomes Paul, whether he's riding on a donkey, riding on a horse, gets knocked off, ends up writing Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. He writes all these words because God has spoken to him and moved mightily in his life. And we're recipients of that teaching today. Paul understood the sovereignty of God, even when he had physical affliction. Paul understood the omnipotence of God, even when he had physical affliction, even when he had difficulty and hardship. In Acts chapter 10, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. The non-Jewish believers, for the first time, are born in Acts chapter 10 with a sign and a wonder of them speaking in another language that God was saying, they are included in this plan of salvation, the furtherance again of the Abrahamic covenant. And in Acts chapter 12, James is killed. Peter is imprisoned and miraculously, supernaturally, he is set free by an angel. And then we get to Acts chapter 14. Paul is stoned to the point where they think he's dead. They leave him for dead. And then in Acts chapter 16, we have Paul and Silas locked up in prison, miserable, whining and moaning and complaining. How can this gospel go forth that you've called me to preach? The apostle Paul must have been thinking, when I'm in prison. No, that's the reversed standard version. That's not what was happening at all in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison singing hymns, giving glory to God because they knew something that we've forgotten. Ours is the God who is sovereign. Ours is the God who is omnipotent and all-powerful. And whether we're in prison, whether we are martyrs for the glory of God, it is about the sovereignty of the God of the Bible and Jesus, the living and true God, the first and the last, the one who was and is and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, the great I Am. It's all about Jesus and Paul and Silas knew that. The Philippian jailer, scared for his own life, going to take his own life, and God saves the Philippian jailer. My friends, I think that we have lost sight of the sovereignty of our God. We've lost sight of the omnipotence of our God. We've lost sight of our rich heritage and that ours, the God of the Bible, speaks his word, keeps his word, and nobody, nothing, nowhere, no how can come against him and succeed. God gets the last laugh. Now some of us might take the sovereign, omnipotent hand of God the wrong way and start speaking a little bit of French, so to speak. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. Well, God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. Can't change anything anyway. Be careful that you don't mistake the sovereign, omnipotent hand of God as an excuse for inaction and indifference because it's not, and many of us have taken it that way. 
Do you not understand that in every single one of those passages that we just looked at briefly, which is just a sampling of what we find throughout the Word of God, that in every single one of those circumstances, God was using people who were surrendered to him, who were partnering with him, that God was speaking and God was moving and people were moving with him. People had faith, not fear. They believed in the sovereignty of God. They believed in the omnipotence, all-powerful God that they were serving, who they were entrusting themselves to. And they saw God do through them, warts and all, amazing, miraculous things that today we're looking at and saying, what? Wow, that's our heritage. That's our history. That's our God. He is sovereign. He's omnipotent. He gets the last laugh. He has the first say. He makes the things that don't seem to be coming out now come out the way they should be. Don't let yourself be lulled to sleep at a key time in this history that we're living right now. History is being written right now. History is being written right now. And if we learn anything from the Bible, we learn that ours is the God who is sovereign. Ours is the God who's omnipotent. Ours is the God whom we can worship and serve with freedom no matter what the consequences are. Ours is the God who overcomes unbelievable odds. Ours is the God of the underdog. Ours is the God who always wins, always moves, always keeps his word. That's how we respond to what's happening in world events right now. Now, I believe in the rapture. You might believe in the rapture. You might not, but if you love Jesus and he's the Jesus of the Bible, we could have a meal together. You might believe in the rapture and you might believe that the time and circumstance is different than what I believe. But if you believe in Jesus and he's your God and he's your savior and you believe there's no other way to get to heaven apart from him, we can have a meal together, no problem. God is in charge of the circumstances, the timing of the rapture. And you might not even believe in the rapture. You might think I'm a nut job. You might think I'm already a nut job. (laughs) My biggest fan over here. You know, I think, I uh, say this respectfully, some of my dear friends in Christ, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ who are preaching on television, preaching on the internet with podcasts, doing all types of things, say, you know, world events are such that the end is near, the end is near. You know, Paul thought the end was near 2,000 years ago. The rapture was never meant to be the evangelical escape hatch that we've made it into. If you knew that Jesus was not returning for 200 years, would that change the way you're living and the way you're perceiving world events right now? You better believe it would. We've got to stop having this lackadaisical case de rasera, whatever will be, will be. God is sovereign, it's up to him attitude. And we've got to begin to realize that if it's going to be, it's up to me and God. If it's going to be, it's up to me and God. Talk to the soldiers in World War II who liberated Germany. The rapture, no matter what you believe about it, if you even believe about it. The return of Jesus, maybe you don't believe in a rapture. The return of Jesus is not meant to be. 
the evangelical escape hatch that we have made it into be to lull us into inaction and indifference as if it doesn't have anything to do with me. Are you not reading your Bible? Are we not reading our Bibles? It is up to you. And it is up to me. God is moving and he wants you. He wants me. He wants you. He wants me. He wants you. He wants me. He wants his people to partner with him. That's the way God gets it done. That's the way God gets busy. He uses mere mortals. And we've only looked at that in a brief sampling today. Start reading your Bible. And start acting as if it depends upon you. And trusting and praying and resting as if it depends upon God. Because both are true. That's the way God gets busy. That's the way God gets things done. That's the way God keeps his word. He speaks it. He promises it. And then he looks for faithful men and faithful women to roll up their sleeves and say, my God is sovereign. My God is all-powerful, and I'm going to walk by faith, not by fear, and give God all of me so that he can spread through me the aroma of Christ and fulfill what he said would be fulfilled. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.